Life is full of stories, and we'll talk about that on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Welcome, folks, to the Mind Dog uh, TV podcast. I'm Matt Napple. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. You caught me almost in the middle of a sneezing fit. This has been a really, really uh, tough allergy season for me. I know a lot of other people are saying that, too. Uh, something very unusual is going on in the air this year over here in the States anyway, where I am. Lots of um, lots of people complaining about how bad this allergy season is, and it's particularly bad for me. And you almost caught me in the middle of a sneezing fit. There, we're gonna have a another episode of Meet the Author today, and uh, it, it's a very interesting uh, um, discussion that we're gonna have. Uh, my uh, guest today writes what we call what he calls gritty realism. Uh, but he also has uh, he's a, a novellas and novels, but uh, short stories uh, that are more nonfiction, so uh, as well as fiction stuff. So should be a very interesting program. Today's uh, broadcast is brought to you by AudiobooksNow.com. Audiobooks, you know about the convenience of audiobooks. You also know you can find them just about anywhere on the web these days. So why AudiobooksNow.com? What makes them different? Well, the answer is very simple. It's price point, price point, price point. Audiobooks Now Club pricing plan is simply the best deal on audiobooks you'll find. It offers the savings and flexibility not found anywhere else with their uh, save-on-everything discounts, rollovers, exclusive offers, loyalty program, incredible selection, and cancel-anytime policy. It simply cannot be beat. Plus, get a free premium audiobook on select titles uh, when you click the link that's in the description. You're also going to start a 30-day free trial of the club pricing plan, which is normally $4.99 a month. It's absolutely free to try for 30 days. If you're not happy at any time, you just cancel. You're not going to be billed a penny. It's just that simple. Uh, you can read, listen to. I always want to say read. Listen to a lot of books in uh, 30 days, folks. With audiobooks now, you save on every audiobook you purchase. They don't hide uh, the, the true cost with gimmicky credits and stuff like that. Whether you want to save big through the club pricing plan or simply purchase at their everyday low prices, they offer one of the largest selections on audiobooks anywhere. You can download or stream the audiobooks through the website or free apps, and all the apps include in-app purchasing. Uh, it's a great deal. Please click the, the link that's in the description. We do pay, uh, appreciate you patronizing our sponsors. I am just so out of energy, folks, really crawling to the 500th episode. One thing I do want to let you know about this Thursday night, and this has to do with me crawling, folks. Uh, this Thursday night, we're going to start something new. It's calling open, th- open night. Uh, open lines all night long on Thursday night, starting this Thursday. And you see it says May 3rd. That just shows you how burnt out I am. Thursday is actually May 6th. Uh, so, but viewer calls, anything on your mind, you call in. Uh, the number will be in the description Thursday night. Also, p- patrons, p- members of the Patreon page, will get a link to join me on the video stream. So uh, if that's what you're inclined to do, again, it's your show. I'm just going to moderate it. And that begins Thursday night, uh, May 6th, not 3rd. As I mentioned today, we're going to meet the author. Nick Garad writes, uh, gritty realism or social realism, as he likes to say, working class kitchen sink drama. His latest short story is a collection, uh, is called 
uh, Struggle and Strife, 15 short stories covering the political and personal struggles of today, yesterday, and the future. Stories of casual workers, Holocaust survivors, refugees, slum dwellers, and trade unionists. Tales of protests and fight backs against oppression and the daily battles of ordinary people. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears and open your minds and help me welcome in Nick Garad to the Mind Oak TV podcast. Nick, welcome. Well, th- thanks for having me. It's nice it's, to be here. It's my pleasure. Oh, sorry about your allergies. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being here. Now, uh, uh, I understand you are in the Czech Republic. Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Olomots, which is um, uh, about 200 kilometers from Prague. Right. Uh, small city, very historical. Nice. No tourists. So it's... Right. Uh, uh, so it's a good place to live. Yeah, it's nice. What what brought you there? Because you're originally from the UK, are you not? Yeah, I'm from Birmingham in the UK, the big industrial city, the second city after London, as um, I like to tell everybody. Um, I came here in '95 just to for something to do, really. And uh, I met my wife, my future wife, and uh, we left and travelled around, and then we came back here uh, about. 12 years ago and opened the eco-tourist lodge in the uh, mountains and um, we we sold that and now we're living in the city so so i understand that um as a young man your aspiration was to be a punk rocker kind of like me you wanted to be me well i don't <laughs> i don't think it was my aspiration i was a punk rocker so <laughs> okay so you were me <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will you. Yeah. But I had a lot more hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. I did too. <laughs> At yeah. one time. Uh, so, how does one go from from uh, punk rock to to novelist and storyteller? I think the two are linked. Really, I think it's about um, where where I grew up was a very um, uh, poverty area and working class area and there was no jobs there was nothing to do and then uh, 77 78 punk arrived and um gave us a chance to do things to um you know start bands stop fanzines uh, put gigs on uh, started writing uh things for uh political things and uh, from there it just escalated really i got uh, I, wrote, I started to write more and more political stuff then i traveled so i wrote travel stuff so i think the the whole punk ethos is is kind of bound in together with my writing really right yeah. uh but did uh did you do a lot of reading and where did where did your literary style uh evolve from I didn't do a lot of reading at school because school was rubbish um, when I, and I left school at 16. Um, I think it was like being in the uh, kind of um, the underground world that punk was, was, uh, um, was about and then meeting kind of hippies and uh, different people. And then uh, they said, oh, you should read this novel. You should read this. You should read that. Um, so, yeah, I kind of uh, self-educated myself, really. Um, and I kind of liked um, Bukowski, uh, Steinbeck, Orwell, wow. uh, Hemingway, those kind of people, really. And um, so I suppose that the, they influenced me quite a lot, really. Um, do I understand you do abridged versions of, of, of their work? Or <laughs> some- yeah, I do. Yeah. 
to make money, I, I do yeah. abridged versions for a Czech uh, publishing company. Uh, um, and I do, um, I've done Steinbeck, I've done 1984, I've done Animal Farm, Dostoevsky. I uh, uh, also have to do some horrible stuff like Virginia Woolf and things like that. Um, <laughs> but but it's, um, and uh, yeah, it's a bit like, uh, I kind of feel a bit privileged to do it really because it's, uh, it's like opening up to uh, I'm reading books which I really wouldn't normally read you know um yeah. and so I'm having to study uh, each Roger's style and then kind of condense it down abridge it for a, a central european audience right really yeah. um for for people listening and uh, people who are virginia wolf fans um uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take the hate mail hate mail on that info at minddogtv.com <laughs> Uh, you can send them my email. I don't mind. That's fine. Uh, your website is, uh, is on is scrolling by on the bottom anyway, and the link is in the description. It's a uh, it's a nick nickrodauthor.wixsite.com slash books. It's kind of yeah. a long one, but it's in the description, so don't bother typing it all out. Just click the link that's in the description. Now, uh, political activism is kind of uh, something that drives you. Yes. Yeah, uh, I, I think kind of um, from punk um, at the end of the 70s, which started off as a kind of fashion thing and a, a lifestyle thing, um, it, it was political with The Clash. Uh, I was a big Clash fan, so it was very political. And then um, at that time, at the end of the 70s, was – uh, you know, high unemployment. So there was a lot of political activism around. And I kind of got more away from being in a band uh, and got more involved in the political side of things. And then the miners' strike in 1984, 95, 85, sorry, uh, really politicized me. And uh, we were doing gigs for the miners, gigs for unemployed centers. And um, yeah, so I then became really politically active. Uh, um, I, I used to uh, work for the trade unions organizing um, low-paid workers on building sites and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I've been involved. I was involved, heavily involved, I would say, for about 10 years uh, right. in, the eight, in the 80s, politically active. So, mm. so I have something to um, – my stories are uh, in the new book are, are based all around the world. Um, but, I, but I have something to um, – you know, something that I can uh, relate to because I was involved in political struggles, involved in riots, protests, marches, organizing casual workers and, and things like that. So I'm able to draw on my own uh, experiences uh, and put it into the stories, really. Yeah. Let me uh, uh, share something about Americans that you probably know, uh, but may not be always uh, constantly aware of is that although we think we're the best at everything, we know the least about the rest of the world uh, out of any country. And so when you talk about minor strike, we, if it doesn't happen here, we don't know about it. Uh, and it, it, really, you know, it was, it was like one of the biggest political, um, was it coal miners? I mean, what yeah, kind coal of miner miners strike, basically it was, it was Margaret Thatcher's, um, uh, big stand against the trade unions. It was to smash the trade union movement, really, in eighty four, eighty five. So she she attacked the, you know, the the leaders of the working class, right? The, the most the strongest union. So she uh, basically decimated the, closed all the mines and decimated the whole communities and changed the whole um, 
composition of my country for uh, forever, really, and until right. today. I mean, the the effects are still felt today, really. Um, the trade union uh, membership is low. Uh, uh, it's growing again now. Uh, people are getting organized again a lot more now. Um, but, yeah, that was the height of Thatcherism. That was her, her, her goal, really, was to smash the miners. Once she's got the miners, then she could go for everyone else. She went for the steel workers, uh, and then you ended up with a casual worker labor force like we got now, you know, people on zero-hour contracts. Uh, and that that is why it's, it was a very important strike, really. Um, I'm wondering very important. I'm wondering so, if that had, was a trick, trickle-down type of uh, thing because Ronald Reagan was our president at that time, and he was mm. very much. He started out as union busting right in his first year in 1981, uh, right after yeah. taking office. So may, maybe you know unions were not very popular in the 80s with the politicians. <laughs> well, I think it, yeah, I think Thatcher and Reagan were good friends, weren't they? Yeah, and yeah I, right. <laughs> and yeah, I think yeah. their politics was all, all about creating the the free market economy. Uh, you know, worldwide open economy and stuff. So uh, they had to hit the unions, um, especially in the UK. And so if you decimate the miners, uh, you know, uh, there were 250,000 men uh, lost their jobs, you know. So, right. um, and uh, that whole, um, the whole culture of the miners, which, which was great. They had brass bands, they had music, they had uh, art, they had communities and everything like that. It was completely decimated. And uh, interestingly, I just wrote a short story, not in this book, but in a new book I'm writing about a miner's wife speaking. And um, she's saying that the, their struggle still continues today. It, it's like the, the miners' clubs, which used to hold uh meetings and art and brass bands and things like that are now centers for heroin uh to get their kids off heroin because suddenly uh the mines closed there's no jobs uh and heroin flew into those areas into those communities you know strange that really yeah it's it's <laughs> it's happened here to heroin epidemic among the young people uh, it's uh, epidemic use uh, i mean and overdoses and stuff I mean, young people i would say 25 to 35 are just being well this was uh, well this was uh, i mean it was already in the big cities but this was in like small mining communities in yorkshire and wales uh, and suddenly, you know, the uh, heroin was not a big city thing. It was like a, a small village thing. Right. Uh, you know, it was like it was there to take away any kind of, uh, well, there was no hope anyway. There was no jobs or anything like that. And suddenly this big influx of heroin came in and the miners' wives are still fighting. Uh, their struggle never ended. You know, they're fighting to keep their men uh, from drinking themselves to death and uh, keep motivated. They're still supporting women's struggles throughout the world and they're fighting to keep their kids off heroin. Um, so, yeah, so yeah. the effects, the uh, we call it the great strike. So it is a very important part of uh, British political history, I think. Right. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's sad, you know, but... I'm I'm torn in a couple of ways here in this story because uh, coal mining is is an issue here in the states right now and trying to save coal mining jobs and as much as I care about the people who are the workers doing the jobs yeah. I also know that coal is not the way of the future and we need to kind of develop jobs that are more future thinking than coal because you might, you might as well bring back 
blacksmithing or you know or <laughs> uh, or something from the 1800s these jobs called jobs are not the wave of the future so uh, i do feel for the people i do think we need to be smart about it and transition so that we start to develop these jobs before we just but I think the thing I, I, I completely agree with you. It is, it, coal mining is obviously bad for the environment, uh, as we now know. Um, but there, there was no uh, plan B. You know, it was right? Just like, exactly. Uh, That's my point. Make them unemployed. You know, but they could have all been employed in new energy industries. Why not? You know, they could have developed the new in, new energy industries, and all those men could have been employed in those in those right. industries. But, but you, you need happened, to have a know. plan. You need to have a plan and transition it piecemeal, not try to just dump everybody yeah. into uh, unemployment at once. Especially you're talking to 250,000 people in one area that that could be. Well, well if you, I mean, that's only the men, uh, and then you had the, the the families as well, and then you had the. Um, industries connected to it so you're talking about half a million to a million people were affected by it and uh, there were no uh, plans that they didn't come and build factories you know to make um, wind farms or things like that or or to make anything uh, right. they were just like you know yeah yeah you're on the doll we smashed the union you're on the doll really so right um and that's why i think it's important that we um that i that's why i wrote this book is that um well, you say this the, book, so we might as well show the cover. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it, it's basically the the book I wrote before was called Graffiti Stories, and that was more about the underdogs of society, the more alcoholics, uh, drug addicts, uh, pimps, and prostitutes, and things like that. And what I wanted to do is write a more positive. Um, uh, book uh, with the spin on the working class. So yeah, there's a lot of strife in there and it's about people's lives and how hard they are. But it's also, I think uh, I try to put a positive spin on it. Uh, so the workers in Argentina take over their factory after the, that's closed down. Um, and the casual workers in London uh, uh, meet up with the uh, trade unionists in London, uh, the immigrant workers, and they get unionized and they start to organize. So it's putting a positive spin on on um, on getting organized, organizing the working class, really. Uh, right. And that's that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to because it's it's very easy to be Bukowski esque about it and just write about the drunks and alcoholics, and which I have done uh, in the, the last uh, short story collection I did. Uh, but this time I wanted to be more political about it. Um, talking about refugees and casual workers, low-paid workers, uh, and even Holocaust survivors, you know, which is um, right. and, and, and there's a positive spin on a Holocaust survivor's story, if you like. Uh, I know that kind of sounds weird that you would have a positive Yeah, I, I don't want to give that away because that, that, that's uh, intriguing enough that uh, enough to buy the book just to find out what the hell that might be. So don't don't tell anybody <laughs> what that positive spin on a holocaust the book. yeah right <laughs> um but so a couple of things here uh are you first of all you're you're a fan of history you're a student of history 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. It's, it seems like history is repeating itself, at least in this country, when you talk about uh, organizing and stuff. And then we see people who are coming out trying to bust up their organization and don't want to let that happen again. And we're, yeah. we're basically we're reliving the early 20th century all over again here with that. You know, we've seen big monopolies and the robber barons of like uh, the Walmarts and Amazon.com and those kind of things that are just taking over workplace and being totally anti-union, doing everything they can to stop people from organizing. So yeah. ha- have we not lived this before? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting point. Uh, one of the influences uh, for me to write the book was um, a political journalist called Paul Mason. He used to be with the BBC and Channel 4 in the UK, uh, and he's a very political journalist. He's wrote some great books. Um, well, post-capitalism was his uh, recent one, and he wrote about the um, uh, the uprisings in uh, the Middle East um, in the 2008, was it? Yeah, the 2008, the, the caliphate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he was there, you know, reporting it and uh, and everything. But he wrote a really interesting book, and um, and it and it actually equated um, the struggles going on today in uh, Pakistan, for example, or South America and Brazil or whatever, and exactly and and he looked back at history uh, where exactly the same thing had happened. So you have like the in uh, Lille, for example. You have the uh, the garment workers who organized themselves and they um, got got organized and made cooperatives and things like that. And exactly the same thing is happening now 150 years ago in Pakistan because right. Pakistan is like, you know, new capitalism and new uh, new forms of organizing or whatever. And exactly the same thing is happening. So you're absolutely right, I think. And every, every kind of... Um, uh, protests that's going on today around the world, or or fight or struggle, has happened before, you know, because because I think we get we've got new places for capitalism, haven't we? We've got India, yeah. we've got Africa, we've got uh, Brazil, for example, uh, Pakistan, India, all those things that happened. 100 years ago, 150 years ago in the US and the UK are happening again. So the workers fight back again, you know. Um, So you're going to get trade union struggles. You're going to get people fighting back. um, And that's a positive thing, I think, you know. Uh, And hopefully we can learn from the the lessons from history so that we can win now and again, it will be quite good. <laughs> I, I, that's the problem. I don't think, I think we forget history too often and, and don't learn the lessons from history. I, we've seen that in the United States here in the last five years or so, uh, particularly with the, uh, the rise of uh, a new kind of uh, populist fascism, I guess you would call it on, on the extreme yeah. right here. So, yeah, I don't think we learned very much from history, and it, it troubles me. So tell, educate me about the Czech Republic, because that used to be Czechoslovakia. Uh, yeah. what, what, is the, uh, what is the political structure there now? Is it, a, uh, it, it, it any kind of representation? Do you have rep- representation in the government there? Yeah, you have a president uh, who is useless and we have a prime minister who's also useless and um but yeah it's a parliamentary democracy uh with a president who has some powers but not not complete powers not like the u.s um 
Economic but, uh, wise, is it capitalist? Is it? Uh, is yeah, it's capitalist. It's completely capitalist now. The the the, main, the prime minister is an oligarch, uh, so he's a big uh, free market guy. And um, but his um, his popularity is going down, and there are new forms of. There was no left opposition, you see, after communism came down. The the only opposition was the Communist Party, and nobody trusted them. Obviously, right. for what they did for fifty years, uh, whatever. Nobody trusts the Stalinists, <laughs> uh, yeah. but but now you've got um, the Pirate Party, who started out as just uh, pirating um, uh, freedom for freedom for copying stuff off the internet, and right. they become really really popular party now, along with. Um, local people um, who represent their local councils and governments. And together, actually, I think in October, November, there's an election. And a, and a coalition between those two may, in fact, turn the country to the left. Uh, to, to it, is the, a, it is a possibility. I, I like the idea of pirate <laughs> I don't know. Some, something about that strikes, uh, strikes a chord in me. I, 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 because yeah. when, when I was on radio in, in, in the early days of my life, uh, my my radio show was described as being like pirate radio. People <laughs> thought they were listening to the pirate radio, something which means well, it was, that- the pirate, pirate pirate radio was on um, in the UK, wasn't it? When they used to have um, Radio Luxembourg on the boats, right on the boat off the shores of Great Britain, <laughs> and, uh, and it right. was called pirate radio stations because of that. Yeah, yeah, because we had no light. They had lo- they had no license. <laughs> well, yeah, you only had the BBC, so you had this, uh, I think it was Radio Luxembourg, which was right. from a pirate ship, so that's where yeah. you get pirate radio stations. Right, so. absolutely. Very cool so stuff. Things, things are changing in Czech. I, I think, you know, um, I mean, people still vote for the for the president who is basically an old communist and, and actually the, the prime minister, although he's a capitalist oligarch, he had connections with the secret police under communism as well. So uh, people are kind of um, kind of waking up, and it might might take a little push, but they're getting closer and closer in the polls to actually having a complete change uh, of politicians because all the parties are the same. They're right. all just old old Stalinists. Even the Green Party is a bunch of old Stalinists and stuff like that. So the Pirates and the the Stan is the is the group of uh, local. Local guys. I, I actually teach one of the guys. Well, teach teach him. I don't teach him. We have uh, political discussions. Uh, uh, and he's a local guy, and he's all for fighting for the local people and his local city. Uh, and he's a really good guy, you know, and he's, uh, his heart's in the right place and his head's in the right place. He's all constantly fighting with the politicians about COVID. Um, and he, him with the pirates will make a, um, a good – alternative to what we've had for the since the revolution really right. since 1889 wow and so for struggle and strife i'm going to show the book again um the 15 stories here the people you, you detail these stories about uh how did you find them were they were they historical figures people you knew about or people you interviewed uh i mean where'd they come from um i think it, i took some from experience, really. Um, you know, um, I lived in Brazil, so I knew about the rubber tappers in Brazil because uh, I lived in Amazonia for a while. Um, I knew about the labor, uh, the immigrant workers cleaning London. 
uh, and I know about the the trade union movement in London, the the activists there. Um, the Holocaust victim is my wife's auntie, uh, so that's based on a true story. Uh, well, only half of it is. I had to invent the half of it because I only get half the story. So. Um, and casual workers and refugees, I've met, we, we've done some work with refugees here in Czech. Uh, I know casual work. I've been a casual worker, a laborer myself. Um, so you kind of take what you know, what you know and then I, I've never been to Argentina, but I can put together, you know, a story uh, based on trade unionism and uh, a love story as well that's put in. So you take a bit of fact, you take a bit of fiction. Uh, and I did a lot of reading as well. I, I got, you can't travel there these days. You know, I couldn't go right. to Argentina and yeah. experience these things. But you, you pick up little bits of stories here and there on the Internet. I read a lot, obviously, uh, D different websites and you pick up something and you think oh yeah yeah that'll be a great little story you know as um um and then you, you you take your own experience and put it together and mix it all up and it comes out as a nice short story i think so right well it seems to me uh if you don't mind me saying that you've led a very colorful and interesting life and <laughs> thank you uh, you know, who lived in Brazil? And it, raise your hand if you've lived in Brazil. Okay, nobody. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I've, yeah. I've lived. In, I've lived in Paris, Barcelona, Lisbon, uh, Czech Republic, Malawi, in Africa. I lived in. There, there's, wow. there you go. There's, there's another story that was set in Africa um, about the pe local people organizing, and, and I lived in Africa, so I kind of. Um, invented the story but i know all the people i know how they live and everything like that because i live there so um right. the story is not true but you know you use your experience again to create something uh positive really so. excellent stuff and i i the point i i guess i'm i was trying to make is your uh it you've lived a life that kind of sounds a like your writing is not only uh inspired by those people you mentioned the uh, Steinbecks and Hemingways and, and such but uh, your approach to writing and what drives you to be a writer it comes from living a life of a very interesting life just as those guys do and I'm, I'm wondering you know a lot of people think uh, the approach to to being a great novelist or a great writer or wh whatever is you know go to traditional school or go to a, a you know, get a degree in English language or English literature and follow that path and just, you know, but mm. it seems to me sometimes life is the best teacher. And I think you seem to be an example of that. <laughs> well, I never, I never had the chance to go to university. So, uh, like, um, I, I think my, my education was just reading basically. And then, yeah, living your life, you live your life and you've got things to write about. Um, uh, I think Bukowski said the same thing is like, you know, if you don't, if you don't feel it inside, if it's not burning to come out, then don't do it. If you're doing it for money, if you're doing it for women, if you're doing it for all to be famous, then don't do it. So these stories are kind of inside of me and, uh, I am a storyteller. Right. Myself, I like to go to bars and, uh, you know, sit there, have a beer and tell stories about things that have happened to me in my life and about other people I know. So I, I kind of think I was a natural storyteller, like my grandfather was. My grandfather was a, an engineer, factory worker, engineer in Birmingham, and he was a great storyteller. 
And so, so you you root to very firmly with the uh, working man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I grew up in that in that kind of you know in that area, and um, and I think there's not enough working class writers out there writing about our lives, really. Right. And, yeah. Uh, you you can go to university. You can do as many courses as you want. I did do um, a couple of courses with the Workers Education Association, which is um, uh, subsidized by the trade unions and they do free courses for uh, working class people and I did a writing course there with the professional writer and so uh, once a week you know you go there and stuff like that so that really helped me um, wow. and then there's another the open university I don't know if you know that um, no. it's a university that anyone can join and you do it uh, online uh, and uh, I did a writing course there but it's very cheap and uh, you don't get a degree or anything um, <laughs> but you uh, you get a certificate and you get the experience of working with a, um, a professional writer so so that was good yeah so you educate yourself as much as you can really so reading is the best way to to find out about how to write I think and um, yeah, and I mean, I mean, I started off writing um, uh, gig reviews, and then I started every time we did we did a gig, I always wrote political stuff to go with the gig because every gig we did was always supporting Oxfam, supporting the miners, supporting unemployed centre. So I always wrote political stuff about uh, whatever we were supporting, uh, and and then when I went travelling, I wrote uh, uh, I wrote a book called Travelling for the Hell of It. Uh, which is a collection of short stories and essays all about traveling. And I um, uh, did some blogging in the days when you used to get paid for blogging. Wow. So I, I used to do some um, uh, stuff for some uh, travel magazines and get paid for that uh, at that time and stuff. Uh, but I always wanted, uh, I, I really like, I really like the short story form. Um, I, I was never a fan, fan of Hemingway, uh, but in the last kind of, 15 years I uh, started reading a lot of his short stories and he's a great short story writer. Um, right. And I really like um, his form. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of cut down and bang, 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 uh, uh, which kind of goes with my punk kind of two and a half minute punk single, uh, you know, uh, way of writing. Um, terse. Uh, and to the point, um, rather than flowery and petals. Can't stand anything with petals. Any poetry <laughs> has petals in, I don't want to read it. Thank <laughs> you very much. Yeah, I hear that. Um, you mentioned The Clash earlier, and funny enough, I think like just two weeks ago, saw a video on how uh, bands were misunderstood or uh, and their lyrics were misunderstood. And uh, The Clash was, was uh, pretty adamant that uh, they weren't as political as as people perceived them to be. People kind of misunderstood their lyrics in a lot of ways and their songs in a lot of ways. I, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how much of that is true or how much of that is trying just to, to kind of distance themselves from uh, politics in a time where po politics is a really divisive thing and just like not be part of it right now. I don't uh, think that's. I don't think that's true. I think. I think. I just. <laughs> Joe Strummer was completely political. Everything he did was political. I agree. Uh, and it, even even the even the first album is all 
you know, uh, career opportunities. Uh, and okay, there's a couple of songs in it that are not political, really. But but basically, well, he was trying to say London Calling was like a love story somehow, and I was like, what? <laughs> like a, a love song written to some or or, or uh, girl that uh, you know kind of uh, didn't didn't jive with him in some way. And I was really? Like, I never heard that. I know, and it doesn't make any sense. It's like, how is that not a political song? Well, I think, uh, I mean, The Clash in the, the first two albums were really political, and that's where they really hit home, um, really, much more than The Pistols. I was, I was like 15, 16, 17 when the first two albums came out, and they really kind of... The first song I ever learned to play on on the guitar was White Riot, uh, you know, and that was all about the uh, black population in London rioting and how white people should riot as well. So, you know, it, it was politics from day one, I think, with The Clash, the first two albums. The third album, okay, it branched out and went in different directions and things like that. Um, but I still like it. I still um, – because we – um, I'm from a multicultural city, so we we were brought up on ska and reggae. Um, you know, the 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 only places we could get in half the place was like if we had a pub that let's do a punk gig. Then after we go to the Jamaican illegal gambling houses and the Jamaican clubs and listen to the roots reggae, uh, big sound systems blasting away. You know, so we we were kind of and you can see that influence in the Clash as well, like all um, right. synonyms from Brixton, multicultural area, and they, there's a lot of reggae in the Clash uh, and stuff. So there was a lot of multiculturalism uh, which came out of the Clash, which reflected, uh, I think, um, our communities where we where we came from, really. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the, the the third album, London's Calling, is kind of uh, this reggae in there. There's all sorts of jazz and all sorts of kind of strange. The first time I heard it, I thought it was ridiculous, but um, I thought this is not punk at all. And then actually, once you get to uh, really listen to it. It is a, a fantastic album, really. Right. Are, are you still uh, – do you still play at all? Now and again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Guitar right, guitar right next to me. I've just been listening – just before we came on, I was listening to the Psychedelic Furs and Albus oh. Costello. So, um, so – uh, I, I don't play in a band or anything like that. And now and again, I play around a, a campfire in Czech Republic when we're barbecuing. Um, I haven't done a gig. I haven't done a gig for a while, really. Uh, now and again, someone will drag me up and I'll do a few songs and stuff like that. Uh, I used to play in, play in Portugal. But I, I think Lisbon was the last place I did a few gigs. Man, what a life. <laughs> you've, you've lived everywhere. I think the United <laughs> States is the prob probably the only place you never live, right? <laughs> yeah, I've never been. I would love to go, really. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, tell me, because you mentioned going to the pub and, like, telling stories. Are there English people, English-speaking people uh, that you can tell these stories to in the Czech Republic in pubs? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a small uh, expat community here. There's the university here, so um, most of the Americans uh, work in the university. Uh, it's quite interesting. There's a there's a split. Most of the university, um, the Americans, sorry, work in the university and are in um, 
that area whereas the british guys are not working in that area they're working for companies one guy works in a warehouse some people are translators uh some people work for companies and so the british guys kind of are not in academia and um i've done a couple of uh talks at the university for a uh american guy who does uh literary um teaches literature uh and i i had a really good go at how i hate academic english uh uh so th that went down well <laughs> <laughs> so um tell me about writing because writing short stories is different than writing a novel i and uh um, and everybody's got a different process. So when you sit down to write, do you know what you're going to write before you start writing it? Or do you need to kind of uh, like outline your story or any of that stuff? Like wh how, what's your approach? Do you just go with a blank page and start typing away? or I, What I don't do is do that, really. I don't sit down and say, okay, I've got to write a story today. I've got to write 250 words a day and everything like that. I wait for something kind of to develop in my head or some story comes along, something that interests me online, or even a song, you know, playing a song. Uh, there's a song uh, recently, Vessel, Vessel in Vain by Smog. I don't know if you know them. Um, yes, and uh, so I wrote a short story called Vessel in Vain, and it's about a guy sitting in a pub saying that everything he did is nothing nothing to do with him. It's not his problem, uh, stuff like that. So I, I kind of wait to get inspired, really. I don't force it. You, you kind of wait for some idea to kind of fluctuate in your head and it kind of develops over a while. And then you go, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and write it today. And then usually it'll just come out in one go. Um, uh, then you go over it again and you edit and you add bits and you, you – uh, but usually, yeah, usually uh, I do my short stories in one sitting really. Um, but uh, I've, uh, since the new year, I've had eight stories published in anthologies uh, and magazines. And I had one story. I went to Gdansk uh, in the summer. I managed to get to Gdansk in Poland. Uh, and a guy gave was selling pictures on the street. And there's a picture of Gdansk and a black figure. Uh, and I said, who's the black figure? And he said, I don't know. It's it's just the stranger of Gdansk. I said, okay, I'll write your story about him. So I, I went back and I wrote the story of the stranger of Gdansk. And uh, that was recently been, been published. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't try and force it. I think it's kind of... Um, well, you know, you wait, to, wait to be inspired and ideas come to your head and then you sit down and do it, you know. Well, and it, sh the, it shouldn't be difficult to do, I think. If, you, if you're straining and I don't think you have to sit down and write two and a half thousand words every day. And, and maybe that's why I like the short story form better than the longer story form. Um, yeah. Because it kind of fulfills me a lot more than having to sit down and write 120,000 words novel uh is not my idea of uh, a good time really <laughs> i get you i get you totally and uh what listening to you you give that answer i go back to where i started with asking, asking you how you get from writing for a punk band to writing stories it seems like the approach you're taking is very much a songwriter's approach which i can uh, relate to where you wait yeah. to get inspired and then it's really just a 
a short burst to get the ideas that you've been that have been ruminating in your mind onto paper, and and so it's a very much a songwriter's type of approach rather than yeah. a novelist right of a writer of approach. So I, I like absolutely, that. yeah, I, I agree with you, yeah. And the, the 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 book I wrote before this called Punk Novelette, which was not a novelette; it was a novella, but. Punk novella sounded so crap. Uh, so punk novelette sounded much better, um, and that, that was uh, that's the longest piece I've written. Uh, and that was um, that was um, yeah, punk novelette. There you go. There it is. So that that was my um, as far as I go at writing a, a, a full blown novel, really, and it's a short novel. And again, it's kind of like. Like the, uh, I I did kind of write it like a like I would write a song really. It's kind of like a uh, bang 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 the story, the kids growing up, uh, and it's over a forty fifty year period, but it's still uh, short and sharp and and uh, short and sharp. And what could be the word at the end of it? Uh, <laughs> Short and short, sharp. We'll leave it at that. Right. Okay, short and sharp is good enough. I like that. So, uh, would you say that? Because um, uh, I'm intrigued mostly by struggle and strife, and I know you've done much other, a lot of quality work here. But would you say the idea of the book is to be uplifting, even though you're uh, you're highlighting uh, struggles of, that people have had and 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 hardships they've gone through. At the end of the uh, day, all 15 stories have kind of left with an uplifting message of some sort. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and it's because graffiti stories was just about the underdog and the underbelly of society. And this time I wanted to put on a positive spin uh, about the working class and, and being a trade unionist and being an activist, I wanted to kind of put a uh, positive spin on uh, any political kind of, you know, they're not all political. One is about a love story between um, a guy and a, and a refugee from Turkestan uh, and how he, th they escape um, from a husband who is an abusive husband, wow. um, you know, but, and they do manage to escape. And, uh, so yeah, I did want to put a more positive uh, spin on everything. Even the the one called Casual Sun is just about a casual worker who's working in a terrible conditions on a building site, uh, but his dream is to he's slowly heading south to get near the sun to Brighton or somewhere like that, and so he can be by the beach. And he's doing all these casual jobs, trying to save money as much as possible. And that's his dream is to be by the sun, you know? And so even that is positive. And um, yeah. And then there's a refugee in Spain who is uh, captured by the police. Uh, and, but he's, he has a good life in Spain. He met a Spanish woman and they set up this cooperative and, um, yeah, so I, I try and put a positive spin on all 15 stories, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after living this kind of really interesting life, is this something you would, would recommend to people who live in a lot of different places, a lot of different countries? I, I would. Yeah, I think it's um, – yeah, I mean, it, it's good for your – it's good for your soul, I think. It's uh, – it kind of um, – 
you get to see a lot, how a lot of different people live, and it's it's yeah, yeah. You you experience a lot of things, and uh, it educates you a lot of how people live in different ways. I would imagine uh, so, because it, it, you know a lot of people never travel more than a hundred miles, even in the jet age, the information age now. But even during the jet age and all that stuff, and we have all this ability to go anywhere in the world. People, a lot of people never travel more than 100 miles from the place they were born in their entire life. I think that's a great tragedy because you do get to see, I mean, your life is rich of experience living in all these different locations and different parts of the world, seeing so many different cultures. It's got to open up your palette to what you can paint your stories with, with a whole lot more color. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I actually, I actually wish I would have done more traveling. Really, I, I, I've done a lot, but um, I, I've I've been. Uh, I had a kid in the Czech mountains where we ran an eco tourist lodge. So it's like we 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 hope we had an eco tourist lodge in Malawi and then in the Czech mountains. And the beauty of that was if you you can't get paid to travel, but you get travelers to visit you. Uh, which we had some fantastic guests, uh, visitors in the Czech mountains. We had this guy, uh, American guy, Big Ben, I call him. He's like a man, he built like a bear. Uh, <laughs> do, you mean, do you remember Grizzly Adams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was, he was just like him. He's about three times I, bigger than me. And he, he was an Alaskan fisherman. And also he worked in the National Park of Alaska uh, on his own for two years, you know, in isolation. Uh, and he came to visit me, and, and it, it was fantastic. So it was a great way. I, I, I couldn't visit people, but people visited me. And his wife worked with street kids in Brazil, you know. Wow. And so, uh, wow. you know, the, getting all these people to come and visit us was a – our way you, you can't get paid to travel really but like getting people to visit us was a great experience as well we had people um i even had an israeli soldier who like apologized and said i have to tell you i'm an israeli soldier uh, would you mind if i come and i said no no come i'd I like to talk to an israeli soldier come on let's yeah. let's talk about the palestinians and what's going on and um don't be don't be afraid of about, about coming and um yeah, we had, we had people from all over the world, from Portugal, from United Arab Emirates, and uh, wow. India, and stuff like that. So that was great, you know, uh, having these people. And in Africa, you know, you, you met the people we met in Africa were like real adventurers. You know, we had two girls who were traveling around the world for two years, you know, going from Africa to America, uh, Asia, and then there was an English guy in a Land Rover who was Traveling, he traveled around Africa on his own for two years in a Land Rover, and uh, he it was, you know, meeting these people was great, you know, and it's wow. kind of that's your education as well, you know, meeting absolutely the, other a, travelers, yeah. It's an amazing, I, you know, I recall one time when I was 15 years old getting on a train to New York City, and there was a guy from Mexico City who didn't speak a word of English, and he sat across from me. And we were struggling to try to even just say hello and stuff. And eventually, uh, because it was a long ride, it was like two-hour train ride, uh, we ended up finding a way to bridge the language gap and have a conversation and learn about each other's cultures in just two hours. But that that conversation sticks with me 
fifty years later. Uh, still, did he, uh, did, he, did he use alcohol? Did was that the? Uh, there was the a little. That... We were in the drinking bar, yeah. <laughs> that always kind of breaks down the barriers, doesn't it? Drink, <laughs> it does. drinking, drinking alcohol on the train always breaks down the barriers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's got to be good for something because <laughs> it's good for a lot, yeah. starting a lot of fights. Uh, <laughs> So you were introduced to me through uh, a mutual friend, Jennifer Jennifer Ann Gordon, who's a great novelist. Who's been ah, on the program. Yeah, yeah, great. How do, how do you know her? <laughs> uh, we were with the same publisher. Oh, okay. All right. Breaking Rules Publishing. And uh, she interviewed me when for my last book. Uh, I was on she – um, she has a YouTube channel, I think, right. for – Vox, Vox Box or something Vox, like that? Vox Vitamins, yes. That's, that's the thing, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> she, she interviewed me, and um, uh, we're completely different writers, you know. I mean, um, right, her, right. Her, her kind of writing is not something... No, me I, neither, and I, 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 I tell her that every time I have her on the show. That, you know, I'm just not... I'm not a romance, uh, fantasy uh, type of guy, and ghosts and, and, and you know castles and all that kind of stuff <laughs> are not my I do, thing i do get asked but obviously by other authors to try and to write reviews and um sometimes i come out of my comfort zone and and try and read something which uh i'm not used to reading but but it's quite difficult to do a review because you can't be you can't be objective if you don't read that kind of stuff i, I don't know if it's good or not really right. i would just say uh I don't like this book because it's a fantasy book, but uh, I'm not. I'd rather not write a negative review. Right. Uh, I never. I never write negative reviews because I'd rather not write a review. Really. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, uh, it takes so much energy to write a negative review, and what what do you gain out of it? You're not gonna, you know, especially if if the book is not in your wheelhouse, something that you really, yeah. you know. But, I mean, I, I, how could I? How could I judge Jennifer's work? You know, I, 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 I know she's a good writer from the other reviewers and people who who read her genre, uh, and uh, I've read some of her stuff, and she's a really good writer. Uh, but I couldn't judge her book because it's just not my cup of tea, really. Right. Um, uh, the way I go about that is uh, this is my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're still a tea drinker, even though you left the uh, <laughs> the UK. You still have a cup of tea. I'm still British yeah. at heart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the way I judge those kind of books that are not in my genre, if I can get through them without falling asleep, I know it's a good writer. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, that That's the way. I, and I go sentence by sentence. If, if that sentence held my attention and made me want to read read the next sentence, I know she's a good writer. And so Jennifer has that. And that's, yeah. the, that's the only criteria I can go by when, when I'm reading outside of a genre that is just not my thing, like, like you mm -hmm. said. So, right. well, I was just saying it's, it's good to see authors uh, more so than anybody else, I think, who support each other uh, and uh, – don't get catty because people in the arts, like comedians, yeah. musicians, filmmakers, all tend to uh, be really envious of each other and kind of backbiting and all that kind of stuff and not supporting each other. So it's good to see people like you and Jennifer a world apart genre-wise, a world apart geography-wise, but still supporting each other's work. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I think I think there's a healthy uh, community online uh, of authors helping each other. Um, there's loads of different sites that we all seem to be on. 
um, authors networking and uh, various different sites. Uh, and we all support each other. You know, I'll, I'll promote Jennifer's books and she promotes my books. And uh, I think it's quite healthy. And we're all kind of... Uh, I used to do uh, uh, a literary uh, magazine as well. So I published about 280 different writers uh, over a, about three years. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a healthy kind of um, element amongst the, not independent, but independent and semi-famous kind of authors, if you like, uh, to help each other and promote each other's work and give advice and do interviews and uh, things like that so and i think it's it's a really healthy scene actually it's it's good and it's much better in the us than it is in the uk really the uk is yeah the uk is still a little bit the old school tie the old private school network is a little bit it's getting better we're getting more uh, literary magazines, which are more open and more working class literature being put out. Uh, but the U.S. is is far more open. Um, maybe that comes from the beat generation. Uh, you might be onto uh, something there, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, 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 they, you know, the, um, they, they put stuff out, chat books, and uh, uh, this punk hostage press is one I know in the U.S. They travel around in this old Cadillac and they sell books and stuff like that, and there's loads of uh, independent presses in the U.S., uh, a lot more than the U.K. Uh, so, yeah, it's really positive, I think. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that, and you're, you're right. And uh, uh, it's it's just interesting how this show leads to coincidences after coincidence. First of all, um, in the last week or so, we've had a lot of people who are activists politically on, well, just last night, again tonight, today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, and, But also, coal mining has been part of uh, people who were brought up in coal mining areas of Britain uh, have been featured guests on this program in the last week. Uh, uh, Rick Lee, who was a drummer from uh, 10 years after the ro- classic rock band, uh, his, his book is all about uh, growing up in a coal mining town and, and basically uh, how that drove him to be, to get into music and, and be a classic okay. rock drummer. So, we, we get, it's just from the, how, U, from the UK. He's from the UK or you? Yeah, Rick, Rick. Yeah, he's from uh, from. I think he's from Birmingham. Okay. Yeah. All right. oh, Birmingham probably, is the birthplace of uh, heavy metal. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's where I guess he was. Uh, he was supposedly, and I haven't gotten a chance to talk to him yet because we had to cancel. He, we had a screw up, so he's going to be on next week. But uh, basically, I think he was approached to take the part uh, in Led Zeppelin, the drama part in Zeppelin when John Bonham passed. I think he was yeah. going to, he was in line to take that before they decided to disband. So. Yeah. Uh, One anyway. of my claims to, claim to fame was a, there was a, a great pub in Kidderminster, which is near Birmingham, and um, I'd never seen Led Zeppelin play, but uh, uh, Robert Plant came to see our punk band play. Wow. <laughs> because cool. the, the local pub we had was like full of like musicians. You would have Cozy Powell and different people in the bar and nobody give nobody cared really if they were famous or not. And there were like wow. uh, petty fetty criminals and then the punk rockers were allowed in there and we kind of all mixed together and he came to see our band play. <laughs> 
I don't right. think he was that impressed, really. But uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> well, he's hard to impress. I, I know that. Yeah. He, he, especially around that time, he had a really kind of. He was known for having kind of a very short uh, attitude with a lot of things and being pretty dismissive yeah. about a lot. But but again, heavy you know. heavy metal comes from the heavy metal industries in Birmingham. Ah, I did not know that. That's where they. Well, that's what Black Sabbath will tell you, and and they because they all worked in uh, uh, heavy metal industries, the iron industries, uh, which Birmingham is famous for, uh, and they said that the 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 sound and the machines and everything influenced their sound and their uh, rhythm or whatever, uh, and that's where you get heavy metal from, and Judas right. Priest from there, Led Zeppelin from there, Black Sabbath from there, uh, the list goes on. There's lo loads of uh, so the birthplace of heavy metal. I've learned something here today. I just thought I just always assumed it was just because of the sound. It sounded like heavy metal. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I just learned something here. Today. It, so it comes you, from Chris. the factories because Ozzy Osbourne and the other guys all worked in big iron foundries. Uh, right. Uh, the heavy metal industry in Birmingham. Yeah. Very so, cool. A little bit of knowledge dropped on me by Nick. Thank you, Nick. Uh, so. Okay. Uh, a uh, couple of questions left because we are over the hour, and I I, I do want to be respectful. Oh, of you. Okay. Um. Uh, with all the experience that you've had in your life, uh, are you an optimist for the world? Because you, uh, especially from the political activism part of it, but in, for humanity in general, are you an optimistic person? Yeah, yeah, I am. I I think we'll. Um, people always fight back. Uh, it doesn't matter what the man does to us, we'll still fight back. And people around the world are getting organized. Even Amazon workers are getting organized now into right. trade unions. Uh, so, you know, it's all positive. Um, we all have really crappy governments all around the world, but uh, <laughs> people people are getting organized. People are fighting back, uh, you know, from Brazil to Pakistan. And, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah, it, it, it can only – the only other way – the other way is just kind of death and destruction of the planet, isn't it? We've got to go – we've got to go one – we've got to go one way where we kind of like um, – people get more political, people get more active, and people get uh, – and only through that can we change things, really. Well, I'm a pessimist, and I do think we're headed towards. The, and not, I, I don't want death and destruction. I, of course, I, I would love. I'm hopeful. I would love to hope for an optimistic out, outcome. But um, basically, I think we are probably headed for death and destruction. You know, we seem to be hell bent on destroying ourselves one way or another. But that's just my natural born pessimism, which is why I asked that question to so many people because people okay. have different attitudes. Uh, one more time. I want to plug the book. It's called uh, struggle and strife. It's by Nick Garrard. It, uh, and the, the links, uh, you can, there are several places you can buy the book. They're all linked to from his website, which is linked to in our description. And if you're on the audio side, it's Nick Garrard. Uh, let me spell it for you. N-I-C-K-G-E-R-R-A-R-D author, A-U-T-H-O-R. That's all one word, dot Wixite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash books. And that's where you're going to find the links to buy all of Nick's books and check them out. Uh, I do appreciate what? Uh if if you just Google my name, you'll find it as well, and you'll find lots of places where my stories are published as well. So if you just want to have a, a read of a story before buying it, if you Google my name, and you'll find my stories in different magazines all around the world. And so, excellent. Well, it's been very informative. It's been great to get to know you here, Nick. Uh, yeah, um, great. 
when, when your next book comes out, uh, please uh, don't be shy. Please come back here and let us help you promote it and, and let people know about uh, that you have a new workout. I will do. We'll do. Okay. Great. great. Thanks right. for coming. Thanks for having me. That's been great. Yeah, have a great night because it's night there. It's it's afternoon here. So, all yeah, right. It's 8 o'clock. <laughs> bye, bye for now. Nick Rod, folks, uh, and very uh, interesting guy. Seems to have led an extremely interesting life. And my big takeaway is just that. It's like it, interesting lives lead to interesting art. Uh, and the more interesting life and the more experience you welcome into your life, the more rich your art is going to be and and the deeper uh, are the things you can write about. And again, I think we both kind of agreed on um, the idea of romance, fantasy, and all that kind of stuff doesn't appeal to us. Uh, I think the reason it doesn't appeal to him because it seems so much real that fake, you know, that, that phony genre stuff doesn't resonate with him because he's had such an interesting life and met so many interesting people in different cultures and all that stuff. So that's my big takeaway. Love to hear what you think. Please write to me at info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. Tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, we have David McDonald, who is also a mystery writer with a hint of activism. You know, mystery and activism. How do they go hand in hand? We'll find out at 8 p.m. Eastern tonight. I hope you join me then. Till then, I'm Matt Napple for the Mind Dog TV podcast. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for coming. Bye for now.
listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.